0: It's all right with you guys. I wanna get started with the message by just having a moment of real talk. Let's talk about what happened this week. On Friday, as we probably are all aware now that the Supreme Court handed down a historic ruling overturning Rome. And that is something that probably many of us have been praying for and even working towards for um, the movement has been almost uh, 50 years. And I would imagine that today is a day that some people are coming uh, feeling celebration and other people are coming feeling conflicted. And there are a variety of reasons for that. I think a straightforward cover to cover reading of the Bible leaves no doubt at all that God's heart beats for the vulnerable. And the top of his list always seems to be uh, widows, orphans, those who are poor and immigrants. Those who are people of God, our hearts should beat for those who are vulnerable and we should be actively involved in, in caring for them. And as we think about this, I, I, I wanna bring to our remembrance the incredible, stunning, courageous, compassionate prayer that Jesus prayed for the forgiveness of men while they were actively driving spikes into his hands and feet. If Jesus did not despise those men, I don't think that he despises women who've had abortions and we shouldn't either. I'm absolutely convinced, I'm persuaded that God grieves the reality of abortion. And I think he also grieves all the realities that would lead a woman to submit herself to that. And I think we should too. And I think we should be compelled by the love of Christ and we should be gripped and directed by the question, what is it that love requires of us? Our state, in our state, abortion remains legal. Minnesota is bordered by four states, three of which abortion is now illegal or trending towards becoming illegal. And that suggests to me that our state will be a destination for women who are in vulnerable positions and feel like they have no other recourse. And so this Supreme Court decision, it did not get us across uh, an imaginary finish line. We are at the starting line of a brand new season of messy and challenging and beautiful ministry opportunities. And I believe we're up for it. I think our track record says that that we're ready for this. We get to be the faces of compassion and reasonableness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness. And so since we're having a moment of real talk, I'm gonna step into what might feel like some raw honesty and, and vulnerability. And I wanna ask the question, how did we get here? What were all the things that paved the way to this Uh, political decision. Did this come about because people voted their values and engaged the political process with wisdom and with dignity? Well, the answer has to be yes. Have there been times over the past 50 years where this movement has partnered with power-hungry scoundrels who, in exchange for loyalty, promised to work on these issues? I think the answer to that is yes, too. There is a mixture of both here. Do you know the term Pyrrhic victory? It means a victory that comes at too high a cost. I'm not of the mindset where I'm saying this is a victory that came at too high of a cost. But if followers of Jesus especially, if followers of Jesus begin to become resolved in trusting in power structures more than we trust in the person and work of Jesus, it might be a Pyrrhic victory. And so... In a weekend like this, in a moment like this, it's important to ask ourselves again, where does our help come from? Where do we believe that our strength and our help really does come from? And what is it that our actions and our attitudes and our engagement and all the different expressions of our life, what does that communicate about what we really believe, where our strength and our help comes from? It's a good question to ask. And it's rooted in this verse that's really our theme verse throughout this series. And I don't wanna just read it every time we preach a message. I want us to memorize this. Psalm 121, one and two says this. I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. You guys are a smart crowd. I know many of you know this already. As you read through the book of Psalms, whenever you read about mountains, you're gonna see two themes coming through. And one theme is just very common to us. is when we behold the grandeur of mountains, it inspires reverence and awe and worship. But there's another theme that might not be quite as obvious to us. It's important to remember that Israel just continually struggled with idol worship. They couldn't break up. And the places where people would go to worship idols, where they would set up the totems and the, and the statues and, and all of that, they were called high places because they were set up on the hills and the mountains surrounding the city. And so it's important to read Psalm 121 is saying, I look up at the hills and the mountains and the high places around me, and I see all the idols that are advertising themselves to me saying, trust in me, but I don't look to them. I look to the one who made the very mountains, He is my source of strength. He is where my help comes from. And so this is our anthem throughout this series. When you are whatever you are, look up. When you're high and when you're low, when you're strong and when you're weak, when you're rejoicing and when you are grieving, look up. And so today we get to remind ourselves of a vulnerability that we have. But the vulnerability that we have is to sometimes look anywhere and everywhere but up, to look at lesser things instead of looking to and faithfully following and trusting the one who is our hope and our strength and the source of renewal and new life. A couple of weeks ago, we tried to make this clear that there's just something inside of me. You maybe have experienced this inside of you that that there's something in us that will look anywhere and everywhere but up. And we said this is our natural kind of default tendency when you're high or low or whatever, we have a tendency to look within or we have a tendency to look around. And what is it that's gonna cause you to feel validated? What is it that answers the question, you are enough? What is it that tells us that we are gonna be okay regardless of the challenges or the hardship that life throws at us? Where do we look? And I don't wanna pick a fight with anybody today. You feel free to disagree with me. I just think that there's a measure of one or both of these inside of most of us, if not all of us. I know what's inside of me. And today is a message for everybody. But it will be felt most keenly by those of us who are willing to kind of just drop our defenses and say, you know what, I got a vulnerability inside of me to look within instead of looking up. And so the natural question is this, how would I know if I'm a look within person instead of a look up person? How would you know if, you have a, if, you're, if you're tending towards looking within instead of looking up? So I got some observations, I wanna share those with you, and not everything on my list is a bad thing. Some are good. Some are not so good, and I'm not trying to make any judgments about you. These are just points at which we might be vulnerable. Can I share them with you? All right. We're vulnerable to be looked within people. Could be because people admire you for your intelligence, performance, and or accomplishments. The well-being of other people depend on your intelligence, performance, and or accomplishments. I mean, this covers everybody from business owners to moms, right? Right? You feel a little better or you feel a little worse about yourself when you see the home of a friend or colleague. You would never say that your accomplishments define you, but your kids feel it by the way that you push them. You struggle to delight in the accomplishments of others when there's no clear benefit to you. With enough hard work and grit, you are convinced you can solve any problem. We know that we're vulnerable or we just have vulnerabilities if it's easier for you to see other people's usefulness than to see their inherent value. You struggle to remain kind in times of conflict or disagreement. I'm sure that's not anybody in here, not me for sure. You sometimes attempt to preserve your reputation or agenda at the expense of other people. You thrive on getting stuff done. And again, not everything on this list is a bad thing. These are just acknowledgments of ways in which we might be vulnerable to look within, to be people who are self reliant and independent. This is my second time preaching this message. Last night, I was agitated. I was agitated while I was preaching. Because I feel like the Holy Spirit's saying, hey, this is really for you. (laughs) I'm preaching, so I feel agitated. So if I come across as agitated, it's because I'm agitated, because I'm dealing with my own sin. I'm dealing with my own tendency to be a look-within person instead of being a look-up person. So today, we're going we're gonna to look at a story. I'm going to tell you a story of a guy who was 100% a look-within kind of guy. Full disclosure, out of all the people in the Bible who we read about, he's on my top five list of people I would love to spend time with. You know those icebreaker questions where people ask you, um, hey, if you could have dinner with two people, living or dead, who would it be? For me, it'd be Johnny Cash and this guy, all right? The man that I'm talking about is Nebuchadnezzar, all right? And for you old school folks, this is my best attempt at flannel graph. This looks like a picture that came out of a storybook when I was a kid in Sunday school. Now, if you don't know who Nebuchadnezzar was, he was the potentate, he was the king of Babylon. And in the sixth century BC, he basically conquered the known world. And he was not just a maniacal, um, power-hungry ruler. He was a man who was incredibly intelligent. He was a man who valued all kinds of beautiful things. He, at times, he seemed to be very curious. He was very much a spiritual person. And his, uh, his capital city was the center, was the hub of art and architecture and education and power. He had many stunning achievements. One of his accomplishments is that he sacked the city of Jerusalem and he carried away exiles, Hebrews from Jerusalem back to Babylon. And he took the best of the best of those and he educated them. And then the best of the best of those, he integrated into his own government. And one of those people who was an exile from Jerusalem, who was the best of the best of the best, was a guy named Daniel. And in the Old Testament book of Daniel, Daniel writes about some of the life experiences and interactions with this man, Nebuchadnezzar. So we're going to turn to that right now. Daniel chapter four says this, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid and I was lying in bed. The images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. And when the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they couldn't interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence and I told him the dream. If you're not familiar with the book of Daniel, please go read the book of Daniel uh, this week. One of the things that you'll discover is that, that Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel had a very strong working relationship. It might be too much to say that they were friends. I don't know that we could say that, but I think it's fair to say this, that they had mutual respect for each other, and Daniel honored the king, and he honored the king in a way that never compromised his own integrity or his own allegiance to God. And so they had some kind of affection and mutual admiration for each other, and and Nebuchadnezzar just relieved. He shares this dream with Daniel, and the dream was this. He dreamed about this magnificent, giant, majestic, beautiful tree, almost a supernatural tree. And in it was all kinds of different fruit, and all kinds of different animals were in its branches, and all kinds of different animals were underneath its shade. And then he heard, in his dream, this voice from, from God say, I'm tearing it down and he ripped out the tree and all the animals and all the fruit was scattered and all that was left was this gnarly stump and roots. And so Nebuchadnezzar's just freaked out. And Daniel says to him, King, that is a message from God to you. And this is what it means. That tree is your empire. It's all of your glory. It's all the things you've achieved. And God is going to snatch it away from you until you acknowledge that heaven rules. And then, with guts, Daniel looked the king in the eye, filled with grace and truth simultaneously. He said this, therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right. Renounce your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that your prosperity will continue. And Daniel just looked at the most powerful man on the planet and said, repent. Even though everything in your life is going great right now, look up. God is the authority. Will you acknowledge that? Because if you won't, he will prove it to you. And I want to take this moment of just truth and a call to repentance that Daniel shared with Nebuchadnezzar. I want to see if we can make it personal for us by asking this question. Is God the authority or is he an accessory to your life? Is he the authority or is he an accessory to your life? When we look up and we trust in him, we're saying, God, you are this. When we look in and we try to be self-reliant we're treating him as though he is this an accessory. And Nebuchadnezzar doubled down, he continued to be a look within kind of guy. And this is what happened. 12 months later, a year goes by. So the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. He said, "Is this not the great Babylon I have built? Pretty great." Look at my residence. I've built this royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my, what's this word? My majesty. I want you to hold on to that. I want you to fold it up, put it in your back pocket. That's going to be important later. Even as these words were on his lips, he could not get the words out of his mouth that God brings judgment. A voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken away from you. You will be driven away from people and you will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass for you until you acknowledge that the most high is sovereign over all kingdoms on the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. And that's exactly what happened. He became a madman. He lost his sanity. And I don't know how long seven times is, but however long that is, that's how long he lived. As an animal, as a beast, just outside of the city, out in the wilderness, he lost it all. And the question is, how did he get to this point? That God graciously gave a shot across the bow and an invitation, here is a dream to disrupt you and here is a man who gives you a crystal clear interpretation and crystal clear instruction. What happened? What happened was that he was calcified in his self-reliance and in his pride. And I think the warning to Nebuchadnezzar and the warning of Nebuchadnezzar is a warning for us as well. Physical wealth makes it easy to forget spiritual poverty. Physical wealth makes it easy to forget spiritual poverty. I've been told we are not, um, we are not wealthy and this isn't a wealthy community, to which I wanna say, false. We may not be stupid rich, but we're very likely wealthier than we even know how to imagine. And blinding ourselves to the facts makes us easy targets for deception. Now, when we say this right here, we're not saying that it's wrong to be wealthy or wealthy people are bad or because you and I have wealth that we're naturally just brimming with sin and arrogance. That's not what we're saying. And we're not saying that poorer people are morally superior and have some sort of spiritual head start with God. That's not the point. The point of this is this. To the degree that I have wealth and ease and comfort to that same degree, I'm going to be vulnerable to trusting in myself and in my stuff and being self-reliant. Physical wealth makes it easy, not certain. Physical wealth makes it easy to forget our spiritual poverty and how much we need God. That's what happened in Nebuchadnezzar. And this is a very common disposition for those who live in the Western and modern world. Now, up into this point in time in his life, Nebuchadnezzar was living on top. He had it all. He he was at the height of power. He was at the height of achievement. He was at the height of wealth. There was no one for him to look around and be like, man, I want to be like that guy. When I level up, I'm going to be like him. He was at the top. Everybody looked up to him. Now, I take him at his word when he says, listen, I looked around at all that I had, and I was content, and yet... In that place, his wealth and his power and his achievement was not enough because he could do nothing with all of those things to protect himself from the reality that he was fragile. And I think Nebuchadnezzar knew from his own personal experience what very few people know and discover. And the thing that he knew is something that you gotta have to be at the top to know. I mean, to really know it from experience, you gotta be at the top. Because people who live at the top, the the Nebuchadnezzars of this life, they discover that their life is often troubled, and for two reasons. One, the human soul wants something so big you could pour all the empires of the world into it, and it's not enough to satisfy. And second, there is no combination of acquisition and power and achievement and wealth that can buy our way out of the fact that we are fragile. I want to share with you an article that I read a number of years ago in Business Insider. Um, The author of this article is anonymous. All that we know about him is that he made $15 million before he was 30. That doesn't happen to guys who go to seminary. (laughs) This is what he writes. Being rich does come with some downsides. And the first thing you are thinking reading that is cry me a river. Well, that's one of the downsides. You're not allowed to complain about anything ever. Since most people imagine being rich as nirvana, you are no longer allowed to have any human needs or frustrations in the public eye. Well, there's a second downside. Most people now want something out of you. If you aren't married yet, good luck trying to figure out about whether your partner is into you or your money. The next thing you need to understand about money is this. All the things you picture buying, they are only worthwhile to you because you cannot afford them. Everything is relative, and you are more or less powerless to that. Yes, the first month you drive the Audi or eat in a fancy restaurant, you really enjoy it, but then you sort of get used to it, and then you're looking towards the next thing, the next level up, and the problem is that you have to reset your expectations, and everything below that level doesn't get you quite as excited anymore. He says, this happens to everyone. Good people can maintain perspective, actively fight it and stay grounded. Worse people complain about it and commit general acts of, um, I don't know if I could say that word in a church service, so I'm just gonna say people commit acts that basically express that they're jerks. But remember this, it would happen to you too, even though you might not think so. You'll just have to trust me on this one. And I think what this guy is saying is, Wealth will not fulfill us. It's not a bad thing, but it won't fulfill us. And it will not protect us from our vulnerabilities. It will not protect us from being fragile. What this guy is saying is there's nothing that wealth will do to protect your joy. There's nothing that wealth can do to protect authentic relationships. There's nothing that wealth can do to protect our integrity. That there is no combination of achievement and acquisition and wealth and power and control and life that ultimately satisfies, that ultimately satisfies what we need. And for those of you who are readers and fans of C.S. Lewis like I am, you're probably thinking about the exact same thing I'm thinking about. C.S. Lewis said this, If we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. So look up. Nebuchadnezzar just wasn't getting the message. And so God intentionally, supernaturally, brought insanity and heartbreak and humiliation to his life. I want to say something that might be a little challenging, so I hope we can all kind of drop our guard and just sit in it for a second. If your view of God doesn't allow for the fact that he would intentionally manufacture pain in your life, your view of God is too small. And somebody might ask, well, why would God, if he's good and loving, bring such hardship into a person's life? Well, the answer's in the question. It's because he is good and loving. That God did this to Nebuchadnezzar because he wanted good for him, because he loved him. He set his heart on him, and he smiled on him. He deeply loved Nebuchadnezzar. Would you be willing to consider this? Discipline isn't unloving. Indifference is. And God supernaturally intervened in his life and brought calamity to change his perspective and to bring truth into focus. And yet Nebuchadnezzar doubled down on his self-reliance and pride. And this is what pride does. It does not allow us to happily be under the authority of another. Pride does not allow us to happily be under the authority of another, and yet that is what we were made for, to be happily under the authority of the one who made us in his image, who loves us and even gave his life for us. And there is no person in this room or outside of this room, there's no person anywhere who God will not eagerly and happily accept and embrace. But there is one thing that God will not tolerate, and this is the thing that keeps people out of God's embrace, and that's pride. Pride. And if we look at the example of Nebuchadnezzar, I think we see this. Pride is not being blinded by strength. It's being blinded to it. The problem was not that Nebuchadnezzar was strong, as he couldn't imagine anything stronger than him. The problem was not that Nebuchadnezzar was great, as he couldn't imagine anything greater than him. He couldn't imagine himself needing anything else. Look at his attitude. It's not, this is the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty. And at the height of pride and arrogance is where the judgment of God fell or the discipline of God fell on his life. Call it whatever you want, but God graciously intervened in his life and caused him to lose his sanity and to live like a madman, like a wild man, like a beast outside of the city. And if it's okay, I wanna draw our attention to what I think might be a very important and profound corollary. And there is a corollary between the irrationality of rejecting the authority of God and animal-like behavior. What is it that makes us more than animals? To the degree that we reject the authority of God, To that same degree, we will see and experience animal-like behavior in people. And God gave Nebuchadnezzar the terrible gift of independence. And if we could see and experience what it's like to just be cut off from his presence, if we could see and experience what it's like to be removed from his common grace, if we could see and experience what it's like to be cut off from the one who is the source of all dignity, we would never look to anything else again except to him. I've shared this before. I'll probably share it. Many times again in the future, it comes from the thought of a Christian Dutch thinker named Hans Ruchmacher. He He said this. He said, "Jesus didn't come to make us Christian. He came to make us fully human. It is no secret that our culture is locked in a wrestling match and a fight over what does it mean to be human and what does it mean to have an authentic human experience. And what I wanna suggest to us today is that the light of truth is never found by looking within. It's found by looking up to the one who loves us and who made us in his image. And when his sanity was restored to him, Nebuchadnezzar looked up and he acknowledged heaven rules. In Daniel 4, we continue to read, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and my splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. We're gonna come back to that. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt the glory, the, it, excuse me, and glorify the kingdom of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride He is able to humble. And there's a lot of beautiful things we can draw out of this, but there's one thing that we've gotta say and we don't have much time, so let's limit it to this. It's always better to be humble than to be humbled. We think about these past couple of years, and maybe for you it's been longer than the past couple of years that we've dealt with hardship and things. that just kinda wear us down. Or you think about maybe things that have gone on in your life particularly, or I think about things that have gone on in my life particularly, and I need comfort and renewal. Did God cause those things in the same way that he caused the hardship in the life of Nebuchadnezzar? Well, I don't know. Just because God sometimes does that doesn't mean that every instance of hardship and difficulty is something that God specifically caused. For me to say God caused these things, well, I, he needs to give me a dream or a Daniel. or He needs to reveal it somehow, but he hasn't told me that. I don't know if I should believe that, but I have no reason to not believe that God is gonna keep his promise. Promises that we read in Romans 8, 28, that he will use all things. He'll use all things. He'll cause all things to work together for good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so for those of us who trust in him, for those of us who don't trust in him, for those of us who feel tired and worn out or we need some renewal and encouragement in our life, look up and trust he will keep his promises for you that he would cause all things, even the good things and the bad things, the heartbreaking things and the things we celebrate, he'll use them all for your good and for my good as we love him and live for his purposes. I think that's what Nebuchadnezzar would encourage us to do. If it's okay, I just want to paraphrase his testimony here. He says, I was blinded to strength and authority. I drank my own Kool-Aid. I was blinded to reality by my own pride. God graciously and painfully wrecked my delusion. He broke me. He humbled me because I refused to be humble. Now I am happily under his authority. Daniel chapter four is somewhat stunning to me. Have you noticed whose perspective it is that's writing it? It's not so much being written about Nebuchadnezzar. It reads as though it's written by Nebuchadnezzar. This guy was changed and made brand new in faith and in worship. I expect to see him in heaven. And he was given the privilege of writing a section of God's word to us. Daniel chapter 4 is like his personal testimony to us and to the nations. It's like his own baptism video. I want us to look again at something that Nebuchadnezzar said, and I want to make sure that we don't miss the, there's a subtly stated but powerful change in his perspective. He said this. He said, at the same time, my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. Do you remember the thing I asked you to fold up and put in your pocket? He said, all of this is for the glory of my, do you remember what it is? But now he says, no, 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 no. It's not about me. It's for this. For the first time in his life, it wasn't him first. For the first time in his life, he was a man not just with authority, but under authority. For the first time in his life, he saw himself not as the owner, but as a manager and as a steward of power and wealth and achievement for the good of others. For the first time in his life, he lived for a purpose that was larger than himself. For the first time in his life, he embraced and experienced humility. And this is Nebuchadnezzar's remedy for pride. This is what might be, if you were here today, how Nebuchadnezzar would say, this is an expression of what it means to look up. Recognize that you don't deserve anything from God but judgment. Recognize that you are the object of the great mercy and love of God. Recognize that you are a steward, not the owner of your resources. Happily submit yourselves to the authority of the true king. Invest your money in your purposes and don't just spend it on your preferences. If he were here today, I think that's what Nebuchadnezzar would say to us. As we continue to make observations from God's interaction with Nebuchadnezzar and his response to the true king. there's another thing I wanna draw out. Repentance is personal, but it isn't private. Nebuchadnezzar went public with what God had done in his life, and he went public with his new allegiance and faith and praise of the true king.